0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a few minutes, you'll hear my conversation with the CEO of Qualcomm, Stephen Mollenkopf. Qualcomm is not a household word, but it's one of the most important companies in the world, provides mobile chips, components essential for the cellular technology, and they've been on the cutting edge for decades. You'll want to hear his views on 5G. What does it actually mean for you? What about trade with China? What about companies like ZTE in China, important cellular companies that are dependent on Qualcomm? This couldn't be a more timely conversation because trade is still at the forefront. And this gets to when I look at the week ahead, here's what we can expect. There'll be more noise about the US-China trade dispute, Will we be able to follow through on the good feelings of a week ago and start to get something real that business people can count on when they make investments? Also ahead for the week on Monday, Canada is having elections. Why is this important? Well, Canada's our neighbor to the north, but you have two divergent views on energy. Prime Minister Trudeau is the incumbent and he's been anti-oil, anti-gas, which has not sat well with the Western provinces, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan. Will he be able to survive? The challenger, a conservative called Andrew Scheer, he has some of his own problems. One is, it turns out, he's a U.S. citizen. He has dual U.S.-Canadian citizenship. This came out this summer, and he's been assiduously trying to drop his U.S. citizenship. By the way, as an aside, we hear a lot about Boris Johnson. He had the same problem several years ago because of his parents. He could qualify as an American citizen, and he had to make a loud noise about dropping it. Can't be dual citizen and be a prime minister unless you're in the Baltic states. So, on Canada, a lot of energy news coming up. Canada signed off on the free trade agreement, new free trade agreement with the U.S. This is gonna be an important election. Also, we're gonna hear more about Syria, the disastrous decision by President Trump to withdraw our troops without proper preparation. The House of Representatives is already condemn the president for it, the Senate will probably follow suit by an overwhelming margin. There'll be some noise on impeachment, but the real stories I've indicated before is the ongoing investigation by Attorney General Barr as to what was behind the collusion story of Russia in the first place. A lot of people are very nervous about it. So other things to watch out for the week. On Monday, existing home sales numbers will be coming out. Will the housing industry finally be getting on its feet again? On Wednesday, surging crude inventories. We'll hear more about the inventories for petroleum and for natural gas this week. Surging crude inventories has hurt oil prices. What's going to be happening there? On Thursday, we'll get the durable goods orders. Manufacturing has been hurt in recent months because of uncertainty about trade. Durable goods will give us an indication. Is that on the mend again? So a busy week ahead. Well, my special guest today is Steve Mollenkopf. He's the CEO of Qualcomm. Thanks for coming by today, Steve. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before getting to uh, Qualcomm, uh, tell us how you got there. You uh, got your undergraduate degree, you got your engineering degree, a master's from uh, Michigan, and then something your older brother did, and you ended up at Qualcomm. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I was in uh, uh, finishing up um, my master's degree in Ann Arbor, and I was trying to decide: should I continue on for a PhD, or should I go to work? And and uh, at that time, this was in 1994. My um, my brother sent me a little clipping in a newspaper back that in that time. That's how you found out about jobs. And uh, he said, "You never heard of this company, but it's a company by the name of Qualcomm. You should check them out." And I ended up uh, going there, getting a job. How,
0: how did he find out about it?
1: Well, he he was uh, he's an engineer as well, uh-huh. and uh, he. Was, uh, I'm, the, I'm the little brother so he uh, he was doing what the big brothers do uh, which is uh, he was looking out for me and he basically when, uh, when did
0: he stop beating you up <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't stopped yet no. <laughs> he he,
1: uh, he was doing the right thing uh, from a from a brother perspective and uh, we ended up uh, moving out to San Diego thinking at the time that um, we'll stay a year and uh, see how the company does see how I do and uh, but it, you
0: know it worked out so I read that if you go to your house, you would think it was a storage place for gadgets. Yeah, I've been uh, criticized by my
1: wife for keeping a lot of old old phones around. But one of the one of the pleasures of the job is I get. Uh, Has the
0: Smithsonian been to you yet? <laughs>
1: no, but you can pretty much have the history of of cellular phones from uh, from my office. And uh, but it's great to have the ability to uh, to see so many gadgets. And if you're not a gadget person in this industry, you're probably not going to be successful.
0: You don't get much time uh, for fishing or swimming.
1: Not anymore, no. I'm, I'm a very good at email, but I don't take as much time as I should on hobbies.
0: So a little background on Qualcomm. I love that name, Quality Communications. You've always been cutting edge. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when uh, CDMA, you were competing then with GSM, uh, which was really a hodgepodge, if I remember, of technologies, AT&T, and others sort of stewed together. Yours was the pure one. Describe that uh, first real coup you had with CDMA.
1: Sure. So, so the, the, at that time, this was really back in the, um, in the 80s and 90s, people were trying to figure out how do you get more capacity out of the cellular system? And at that time, people were not thinking that, that everyone was going to have a cell phone. That was an, actually an active debate, as you may remember. And uh, one of the things, really, the founders of the company, this was a little bit before my time at the company they uh, figured out a way to apply military technology. At that time, it was spread spectrum communications, which was a technique that was used. Um, and they figured out a way that you could get more capacity, more more digital cellular users in the same amount of spectrum. And it was, it was significant, the economic benefits. And uh, no one believed them that, it, that they could uh, commercialize it. And it was really one of these great stories of where you had a better mousetrap and you had to bet on yourself in order to to uh, really deploy it. And so there, were, there was an evolution not only of the technology, but of the business model that enabled us to really then invest in other generations of cellular and, and got to where we were. But at that time, it was really quite a, I think, quite a bold bet by the founders of the company to, uh, to bet on this technology that, that the big players in the industry didn't believe in. And of course, they ended up being right. The company ended up being right and uh, it set us up on a very good good path.
0: We're going to talk about 5g so let's start uh, though give uh, late people a little background 1G 2g describe going from analog to digital what was 1g 2g
1: well the first generation of Scyther was really uh, an FM system and it was um, uh, analog is the way people used to describe it and, and uh, you probably remember those, those huge phones that people had it was sort of a almost a, a status box. yeah it's yeah. like a status symbol for for uh, bankers and, and others. And uh, then what happened was really with the advent of digital cellular and in particular CDMA, uh, you, it was economical at that time to put a lot of users in the same amount of spectrum. Then that was really um, 2G or 3G. Depending on where you were in the, in, in the world, you might have called it uh, one or the other. It was really the advent of digital uh, cellular. Then uh, when you got to
0: 3G and 4G. So 3 g as you've said, it wasn't just a voice. The controversy was data. That's right. It's hard to believe today, but uh, describe that.
1: Yeah, back then there were active debates. By the way, even even in our company, there were active debates as to whether people would really use data on their phone or whether they would even want to have a connected computer in their phone. This was, this was a decade before the smartphone. So what we did is we did a lot of the work to figure out essentially how you got IP traffic to flow in a radio environment, and there's a lot of innovation that went into that. But no one really, people would, would say, to, you know, say to us, well, why would you want to do that? And we were, of course, very, very, uh, I would think, firm and very clear, confident in our belief that not only were you going to have data, but you were going to have a computer in your pocket, because you are going to have a reason to use data. And so we were developing not only the cellular technology, but the technologies that allowed you to stream video. So the, the way you stream video to the, to the phone was very important. And then also, how do you get a, a power-efficient computer in your pocket so that you can, you can do something with the data? And I mean, 10 years before anybody had even seen this device. But that's sort of the history of the company is that you, you, you basically, uh, what we've been fortunate to be able to do uh, correctly is bet on these big technology trends, invest in the fundamental technology that makes them happen and then figure out a way to deploy them at scale around the world. We knew that IP traffic was going to flow on mobile devices. There was going to be insatiable demand for data, so we better figure out the technologies that are required to do it, and then there's going to be a computer in your pocket, so you better figure out how to to make computers, you know, the, the, the processing and the CPUs and all the things you need to do that make them very power efficient so that it can become a real industry.
0: In four G LTE, you've made the point this is the first time industries that weren't traditionally cellular uh, came in. Walk us through that. Five G is going to increase exponentially, but first, describe four G so well, people see, understand the evolution.
1: With uh, with three G, just to, uh, just to set sure. the stage. With three G, we really gave the ability to get data in your on your phone, and um, but people couldn't figure out exactly why. If you remember, people were trying to figure out, oh, maybe we'll do video calls uh, you know, over the air and, and all of these things. And, uh, and it was just the beginning time of when you started to put browsers on a phone. And remember, there were specialized browsers and, and all of that. Well with 4G, G, what a couple things happened, two things happened at the same time. One was 4G created economics for the delivery of data that were, that were very, very attractive uh, from the perspective of the operator. Also, we, we eventually then showed up with um, very power-efficient uh, chips, really designed by Qualcomm and others, but, but primarily through Qualcomm, that enabled the ability to really put a real operating system on the phone. And so then what happened was, when we used to, we used to always talk to and continue to talk to the wireless operators, the Verizons, the China Mobiles, the Vodafones, the at and but instantly... All the cl- all the people who would eventually become cloud players, the Googles, you know, the Microsofts, the Ten Cents, the Alibaba's, all of they, all of them, they basically said, "Hey, I know that um, my business is going to be mobile, and I'm going to start figuring out how I get essentially a cloud business." And and a lot of them started to develop uh, OSs, in particular the, the one everyone thinks of as Android, the the, the the OS from Google, and so they were very interested. So now we spend a lot of time connecting companies who, who essentially have mobile as a channel to get to their customers, but talk to us because they need to know our roadmap and we need to know their roadmap in order to design this fundamental technology to make it scale. And that really happened in, you know, in, in, in anger um, with the 4G launches and then uh, continued you know, really worldwide from that point. Really kind of happened in the 2007-2008 timeframe. And, and that roadmap has continued uh, along the way.
0: Now, 5G... Uh, describe what that's going to do.
1: It's, it's really going to take, I would say, I would look at, uh, across maybe two vectors. The first vector is the, and I always loosely refer to it as the more G vector. So think of it as you're in cellular, you're a cellular subscriber, you're going to get better speeds. But more importantly, the operator is going to get tremendous amounts of capacity and and I would say better economics to deliver the things that you already get from them. So you'll get it faster. But more importantly, the operator will have the ability to keep up with this, this you know, data demand continues to grow dramatically. And so um, you know, put it in perspective, some calculations, you'll get the cost to the operator go down by a 30th. So a 30th the cost per bit as a result of 5G. So that's pretty significant just in and of itself in
0: the, in the cellular. But that's data. primarily taking what we already know and accelerating it and making it better. Correct. And, and, and what it does is it, it enables different business models
1: so the operator who has access let's say to that 130th of the cost he's in a, you know they're in a very strong position so, such a strong position that some of them are actually thinking they can go into and compete with the mob, with the, the, the cable providers or the wireline providers because of that access so it's you know that type of innovation happens all the time that's very uh, very good and consumers will like that but the second piece the second vector
0: as you pointed out this is
1: outside cellular this is actually inside cellular. Okay. The second piece is outside of cellular. So outside of cellular, what you're going to see is it's the first time that cellular is designed. The, really, the roadmap of cellular intersects with a lot of other industries who are also grappling with. Everything I have is going to be connected. I'm dealing with big data. And I and what what does that mean when, when everything is connected, everything is connected. What does that mean to a Walmart? What does that mean to a uh, you know, a manufacturer of, of cars? What does it mean to have a fleet of cars that are all connected? Well it's the first time that cellular is designed specifically not for people, but for things to talk to each other. And I, I and, and everybody used to call it, or at least we used to call it Internet of Things, but it's really Undercalls what it is. What you're really seeing is the digitization of things and industry is happening. So the second part of uh, of five G is is really um, as digitization hits, all these other industries are being impacted because they're being connected, and they're most of those things are being connected wirelessly, and uh, and it's because of it. And in, in it, it's probably not over. Uh, overhyped to say that it, for some of these industries it is a it is equivalent to them the electrification that occurred for example years in ago. Yeah. yeah it's so significant and but it but it brings with it a lot of things like well is the network secure is the network reliable they won't develop unless security is in there and and you have to assure that it's secure so there are all these i would call them kind of grown-up problems that you have to do on the technology side that are particular to the use case of cellular in a non-human, you know, if, if, you, have a, if you have a cell phone and, and it, it, it doesn't work for a little bit, a person gets upset, but it's not the end of the world. If, if you're con- remotely controlling uh, a medical uh, equipment, then that's a big deal. Uh, so, so what we did was when we, when we were really designing some of the fundamental technology for 5G, we made sure, that, uh, you know, that was the, the design spec, you know. So we, we always uh, talk about it as if, if I was going to put a remote, if I was going to have a pacemaker and it was going to be controlled remotely, what kind of cellular network would I need in order to do that? And, and literally, that's how we thought about designing the system so that it would work. And th- there's just tremendous economic value that will be created as a result of, of that transition, almost all of it outside of the cellular space. Which is why there's so much interest from governments, and and because it it really impacts industrial, you know, the industrial policy. To put it in perspective, we did a study, and I think there was something like twelve trillion dollars of economic value created by five G by twenty thirty five, and twenty two million jobs. I mean, just incredible amounts of of um, impact. I think worldwide, and you know, we're we're happy to have some Same, ability. That
0: latter part again create. How many jobs? Twenty-two million jobs rel- so, related. So, so much for making us redundant.
1: <laughs> well, it's certainly exactly. I think um, there's a, a lot of uh, evolution. I think to business models and 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 technology. I mean, it'll it'll create a tremendous amount of
0: economic value. So uh, you've mentioned auto. I've seen the number twenty-five percent.
1: Essentially, what I think that twenty-five percent was. Um, that's the amount of uh if you look at the total amount of five G value that's created, that's that's yes. the percent that will accrue to the auto industry. It's amazing.
0: Because some have said that uh outside of Tesla, the uh, computer systems for autos are still not that sophisticated.
1: I would tell you because we see their roadmaps, sort what, of what's coming, uh there's a there's there's a lot
0: of good stuff coming.
1: Uh and and I think um Finally. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it it's um it takes a little longer for obvious reasons to get get something into a car than, than into a, a cell phone, and also just the, the impact of a recall is much more you know, there's just it's a different ecosystem, but, but I'll tell you there, there's a lot of good thinking that is going on at the architecture level of the car and how that impacts things also in, in the architecture of the factory that makes the car also we'll be u- utilizing 5G so they can they'll have a remotely um, Controlled, you know, they, they basically—if you—if your—if your factory is, is controlled wirelessly, uh, there are some things that you can do. You can reconfigure the, the the
0: product line more quickly. You can be more efficient. You can control things remotely. Well, the old factory used to have several stories because you had to be near the water. That's right. Electricity allowed you to flatten it. Now you don't even have to have wires in it. And the
1: speed at which you can react to the marketplace
0: and change your your
1: product is just—it's uh, tremendous. There's a lot of excitement there.
0: Uh, Quickly walk us through. Uh, try to imagine. You mentioned healthcare. It's eighteen percent of the economy. What's five G going to do there? How disruptive is that going to be?
1: Well, I hope it. I hope a lot. Uh, I mean, if you if you look today, um, we, healthcare on a on a daily basis is one of the few industries that I would argue hasn't been impacted by Moore's law. I mean, you 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 really don't. Keep any data. I mean, you know more about your car's history and its telemetry than you do on yourself. Uh, you 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 essentially go back into the hospital or doctor's office periodically to get these very tight uh, you know windows of data. Uh, but if you have the ability to remotely monitor and deliver healthcare, I think you have a significant ability to take that eighteen percent of GDP and make it a smaller a smaller number. Certainly, at least that's what the technology people like myself always say. Um, but I, I think in order to do that, you have to solve some fundamental problems with reliability and authentication. You have to make sure that that data that you're looking at is unbroken, so therefore I can make a medical decision. Well, there there are technologies in 5G that are there so that you can do exactly that. And in, and in particular, we know that having the technology there, you have to then prove that that's the case because, you know, Government agencies are rightfully uh, trying to make sure that that's the case before they can unleash that on the public. Um, But we've been thinking about that, and and Qualcomm. One of the things we try to do is we try to do some of that ecosystem development, so that that industry develops.
0: Um, But
1: if if we could do it, and you get you know, let's say you save three percent on GDP, that's there's very little uh, government policy that allows that much benefit.
0: Well, part part of the challenge of uh, healthcare until recently is that it was mostly third party. So there is no competitive advantage to having warranties or anything else. So you could do the same old, same old, and you weren't punished in the marketplace for it. One of the things that's happened now with these high deductible plans that virtually every company now has, whether you have it alone or with a health savings account or even the Obama exchanges with the high deductibles, even if you have subsidies, literally hundreds of billions people now outlay directly, you're beginning to develop a genuine consumer market, which may drive what you're getting at more than if you had to do it from the top, like they used to say yeah, several years ago. You must have electronic records. Well, every laundromat in the country had electronic records 20 years ago, every gas station. But again, because there's no competitive advantage, it didn't happen. But now uh, you may have an environment where this could come quickly. You, you also have a situation
1: when you, when you connect people, whereas when they leave the hospital... Have not having to readmit them, just because you're monitoring them remotely, tremendous econ- I mean, tremendous savings, tremendous load taken off of very expensive portions of the Often medical you system. it's
0: better when you're treated at home than having to schlepp to the hospital. That's right, and so I think it's
1: the the applications of of I would just say connectivity and secure connectivity to that problem. I think could be quite exciting.
0: Retail, what's it going to do there? Do you uh, think? <laughs> I think.
1: Well, here, here's uh, we get a lot of uh, uh, requests. I would say from uh, enterprise generally to figure out how to help
0: help them uh, well, that's, use 5G. Uh, but not to go back, but that's changed your whole customer base. In the past, you had a handful of customers. Now you're interacting with every industry on the earth. It seems
1: we we are we are, and part of part of the challenge for the company is how do you how do you match that funnel to an organization used to having a concentrated number of, of customers, but I'd rather have that problem than trying yes. to figure out how to have technology <laughs> that was relevant. Uh, we, we, we luckily have that. Uh, but in, in retail, I think you're seeing, um, you know, if you look at the retail space and, and, you know, how people are trying to just, you know, make reductions, for example, in, in, in theft. And uh, so connecting things, logistics, knowing when to uh, restock, they're very, very excited about 5G. They're actually very excited also um, about um, training. I mean, uh, some of these big, um, huge retailers and, and 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 big places just applying, um, you know, some of the five G technologies to their own logistics flow, you know, their warehouses or training people in their warehouses. For example, one of the one of the one of the um, uh, big uses of uh, of VR and AR, so is, is a headset that enables people to more efficiently train to be a picker or, or, you know, someone in a, uh, in a factory flow, for example, and, or, or, you know, in a, in a warehouse. And uh, tremendous, you know, savings to a company to have improvements in the accuracy there, for example. And it's just what's exciting about, you know, 5G in general is we actually are not good in general about figuring out how, to, how these technologies will be used. So what what the, what Qualcomm tries it's to do is make, technology yeah, is make it easy for people to innovate on top of what we've done, and the industry will figure out something much better than what you, you thought of and certainly much better than what we could do just by ourselves. And so that's what's exciting now and why why we're so uh, interested in, in really expanding the funnel of people that could take advantage of it.
0: So speculate for a moment. Uh, obviously it's pure speculation. Uh, what kind of new industries will emerge when you have these new technologies, things we didn't even think of a uh, pop up anything pop up in your head that uh, you think might be unfolding that uh, people can't imagine today yeah what I what I think
1: you're going to see I mean today there are several hundred billion dollar multiple hundred billion dollar companies that essentially emerged because we were able to put a cell phone you know, a connected computer in your pocket. So you had, you know, they had a lot of, you had companies like Facebook and and quite frankly, Google or, you know, Uber, all of these companies had very, actually quite small technology change enabled massive business model changes. When you get to a point where, um, you have data, people, things, location, and sort of their history known and whether it has to be properly known, there's a lot of, a lot of yes uh, but but but, but known, um I think there will be an additional large there'll be some large companies that figure out how to create a business model associated with that, an appropriate business model, of course, um, and I think you're going to see just some massive winners because they figure out how to do it. That's one of the reasons why there's so much desire. For governments to want to get five G out into the into the um, network, because the people who experiment on that first will develop those business models and export them to the rest of the world, at, instead of import them. And uh, to me, that's very exciting. I think there will be some there. There will be companies that didn't know that they needed five G and didn't know that they're going to be five hundred billion dollar companies, but uh, somehow we're going to play a part in enabling that.
0: You've made the point that the pace of uh, introduction of uh, 5G is going to uh, be vastly faster than 4G. Walk us through that. If, if you look compared to 4G, 4G had,
1: um, I think it was like three phones in the first year. Uh, and I think it was maybe three operators, some, something along those lines. I think we're at 20 and 20 now in the first year. I made the statement on earnings call recently that we thought 100,000 base stations would be deployed in China before the end of this calendar year, within three months from now, we, we have the luxury of seeing what's coming. The speed at which they are moving the down in price point, so therefore up in terms of the, the penetration, is much faster than what we saw in 4G. And 4G itself was quite quick, was quite quick actually. So, so we're very pleased with how that's going. And
0: um, So this gets to a, and you can pat yourself on the back on this, what do you bring in the terms of technology versus your competitors that others don't?
1: We're, we're very good at the modem, uh, which is the key technology, the, you know, the, the, the part of it, the the radio part of it. But what's really happened over the last 10 years is that you have to develop multiple technologies at the same time. So the ability to package computing, AI, um, modem, RF, all of the graphics. High-tech are... multitasking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I always describe it as you, you're you, just to be a single, you have to be a, a decathlete. You can't you can't just be good at one sport anymore in this industry and we've had the you know we've had the good fortune of of developing different athletic abilities over the last decade or so and it's it's going to serve us well
0: and uh, another advantage uh, you've pointed out is you can scale faster than others speed in business is the, is a key
1: thing it's a very competitive industry and we compete against you know really everybody and quite frankly, if you're not fast, you don't have the ability to innovate because, you know, innovation, you have to be bringing out things before the other, the other folks. And so, um, you know, inherent in that is that you have to be there first.
0: Before we move on, just to describe the beauty of the chip. Five billion transistors. This is art at a scale people can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and, and now the transistor count's even gone up higher. They're very, very small,
1: uh, they're actually so small to pattern them you have to take advantage essentially you' you're you're beyond uh, optical you know wavelengths yeah. obviously um, but you know I would say it isn't it isn't um, I would say this isn't this isn't an exaggeration. The chips that go into cell phones today are probably some of the most complicated devices that that have existed on earth i mean if 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 you if we were to dig them up years from now. It would be equivalent to looking at you know the the pyramids or something like that. They they, they have they're incredibly complex. By the way, they're incredibly expensive to make. Uh, an SOC, a system on a chip, like we make, can be you know multiple hundreds of millions do- of dollars to to create it. And and uh, you know so so for example you know we um we easily spend more than than a movie you know to make to make one chip. We don't know whether it's going to sell, and uh, so it's a very um. It's, it's a risky business uh, to get into the cell phone business or to get into the, the semiconductor business in general. Um, but, you know, if you're not doing those very complicated chips um, with, you know, billions and billions of transistors, you're just not going to be competitive. So, so you have to be at the, the, what we call the leading node or, the, or the, you know, the, the, the most advanced transistors to be, to be successful. And you have to have the ability to deliver a lot of software. A lot of people don't know this, but we probably deliver more software than, uh, than companies that you would think are software companies. We just ha- The cell phone today just has so much software in it, and a lot of it is delivered by Qualcomm.
0: So it's uh, your company's not just licensing and chips. We actually consider ourselves a systems company. Our, what, we,
1: what we try to do is we try to um, invent technologies that have a lot of, of application, deliver them at scale through the standards bodies, and then through The chip, the chips, the chips. What the chips really do is it allows us to ramp this technology up to the hundreds of millions of units a quarter type of, of scale, and uh, you know if you can do that, you can really have significant impact on on really on the world and and clearly on on other businesses, and so um, it's all of that together. You know, we, we use the standards bodies to really share our inventions in a reasonable way so that so that the industry grows. I mean there's there's a reason why you can develop um, or make a phone call anywhere in the world or make a you know, make a data call anywhere in the world. It's because some company ten years ago thought up why that you know, what needed to be done in order to do that. They shared it through the through the standards bodies and then for us we actually monetize that back through patents. That's why we're and then we use that to, to reinvest in the next generation.
0: It's been often pointed out by Peter Drucker and others that you should focus on uh, your value-added, and uh, you've made the point you're less a semiconductor company, more like a Fabless model, where you focus on design and let others do the manufacturing.
1: For us, we don't, we don't own the factory. By the way, we would not be good at doing the factory. We have a tremendous supply chain. We're good at supply chain, but, but we don't do the manufacturing of it. Uh, and the way the Fabless industry works is essentially companies like ours we concentrate our capital, essentially, on people. We, we have engineers and we try to, that's really where we spend the majority of our, of our money. Uh, and then the factory is really um, shared by everybody in the industry and sort of amortized across the entire industry. It's much more efficient. It's much better for us to be using our
0: capital on really humans, uh, human capital versus uh, equipment. I can say it, maybe you have to be more diplomatic. Your battle with Apple, huge victory. How did you live through that when people were saying, "How can you survive without Apple"?
1: Well, first of all, we of course we think it was good for both companies, and I think that's I think the tape will tell that as well. But <laughs> but um, I think uh, a couple things. One, we we um, there was a legal aspect of that, and there was also a product aspect of it, uh, and we felt like we had a strong hand in both. But in order to to do that, you had to. You had to put up with a period of time where you really didn't, um, you didn't have any leverage, really, and so uh, we had to go through that period of time, and then essentially, it quite frankly, it it finished the way that we said it was going to finish. Um, a lot of people didn't believe that, but we had we had some conviction. We we um, uh, and and you know we were happy to get it done, and I think it, it's going to, as I said, it's going to work out well for both
0: companies. Um, but well, let's uh, Apple focus on real things again. I can say that. But uh, no sooner do you get this big uh, cloud out of the way, clear the sunshine comes through, than a district court sides with the FTC on one of the most strangest antitrust cases ever, including the idea that if you negotiate with your competitors on a dispute, that's not good. The government has to get involved. And now, of all things, the Ninth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals. I guess it's the law of averages can occasionally do something right, suspend it or put a stay on that. Where does that stand now, and or is it just another thing you just learn to cope with and real hope that it's just going to pass away?
1: The stay, which the, um, the Ninth Circuit ruled on, very very significant. We, we we as you know, or I'm sure you've you've read, is we were we were uh, very much. Uh, disagreed with the law behind the district court's decision and uh, very happy to see that stay. And it was very unusual if, if you've read the uh, amicus briefings. We had uh, really the, the DOJ came out and really disagreed with the decision, not on facts, on the law, on all kinds of things. And so we were very pleased to see that happen. Um, so for us, I think that episode, you know, we're in a, we're in a much stronger place than, than we would have been uh,
0: otherwise. And so... Um, one of the things you learn in life is you're never master of the universe. Uh, the trade disputes. What, two-thirds of your sales are in China? What's the it's, number? It's close to that. Yeah, very close to that. Then you have the whole Huawei thing. You're now beginning to sell again. Walk us through how are you coping with the huge uncertainty on something beyond your immediate control.
1: Yeah, so if you look at our, our business, we have, um, you know, certainly over 50%. Would be considered as uh, Chinese revenue, as kind of classified in a K or or a Q, but that's but really the handset market is um, is only about thirty percent of the units are in China, but the supply chain of phones that are that are shipped everywhere, a lot of it is concentrated in Asia and, and and a lot of it in China and will be for some time. Just the the ecosystem is is really centered there, so we have no choice but to figure out a way through that. Now we have been less affected, I think, than other other companies in part because of the way that tariffs roll out in the in the particulars of the cell phone industry but also because I think we're a good partner um, to a lot of Chinese companies and so the technology that we have and really in the form of the chips is very important to them and so we, we're able because we have I think uh, an established business model that works well and we have technology that's you know needed really the the, the launch of 5g which is happening in China, it's happening in the United States, it's happening in Europe, is a real opportunity for a number of Chinese handset manufacturers. And they're, if you look, they're number one, I think number uh, three, four, five, and six, or something like that. There's a, there's a tremendous uh, position that they have. And companies that are very well known in Asia, maybe not so well known in the United States, Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, OnePlus, for example, they want to be strong in Europe. The demographics GDP growth that happens in these areas in China are not big enough for the ambitions that these companies have, and clearly you want to have global scale. That is really where the opportunity for stability in our relationship exists. We're also very important to them in China as well. But, but uh, we, we I would say we really live the.
0: You can't be an isolationist.
1: Well, not 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 in our business. It's it, it doesn't work that way. The kind of the decoupling argument that you hear sometimes it really doesn't apply to to at least our portion of the technology. Uh, you know. Kind of but when people ask me to we'll sort of summarize what our China strategy is, make sure you have good products that people need, and we can figure out the rest. That's essentially what we've what we've been able to do. It sounds it sounds um, oddly simple, but it it really kind of at the point of attack that's what happens.
0: Uh, quickly on government uh, immigration. Where 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 do you see that going?
1: We're one of the companies that. Um, complaining because there's not enough stem graduates quite frankly and uh, and we have benefited enormously
0: because we've been cutting back haven't we on h1b visas
1: it, there's some real work that needs to be done I mean uh, on, on improving that the backlog it's it's really very uh, impractical right now from a from a company
0: in fact forces you to go
1: overseas hello it, <laughs> it does yeah which is un, which is unfortunate because because there's a lot of help there also the other thing I would mention is that the United States university System, Tremendous. That's the reason that we are we exist as a as a company, and our ability to continue to feed that with with the best people in the world and continue to employ them in the United States really important to the success of companies like ours.
0: Spectrum. How does that stand in coping with the government?
1: Well, there are two there are two things that we that we lobby for. They're kind of the same. The spectrum and patent rights for us are the equivalent of water rights in a you know for ranchers. States, yeah. Yes. Um, so, but for spectrum, quite frankly, I think the United States is doing a good job on spectrum policy. We are particularly happy to see 5G, both millimeter wave and sub six, you know, gigahertz spectrum being allocated. Um, very pleased with how that goes. Now, we always want to get more. We always want to have more. There's always work to be done on spectrum. But I think the United States has actually done a pretty good job there.
0: And patent law, been a huge area of controversy, trolling and everything else. Yeah. Walk us through that.
1: I would say it's – so put it in context. We're we're probably one of the largest, certainly the largest worldwide company in terms of uh, monetizing patents directly. Other people monetize it through different ways. You yourself
0: have how many patents, 28 or something?
1: Myself, I have have fewer than those. And if you looked at them from a quality perspective, it would be much lower uh, in terms of the quality of the patents. But as a company, we have 130,000. Uh, patents, all in the same area, basically, or you know, in the areas of right. of, of where we plus we, we're we're quite a strong IP uh, company, uh, and and we we derive a lot of revenue directly from licensing those patents. But there are a lot of people, I think, who see patents as an input cost as opposed to something that um, allows people to invest in fundamental technologies that allows it to happen. So there's a debate on that, and they use the the troll the troll argument is sort of the you know that's the that's the political lever that people use, but that's not really where the where the debate is. So I do worry, uh, quite frankly, that people that the value of patents and you know, which is really an incentive for innovation, at least the way we see it, has um, taken a hit kind of worldwide. And uh, and and so I think in some cases some of these large companies that um, that see it as an input cost are able to move, you know, governments and policy we think kind of away from where it needs to be in terms of um, really securing, you know, the real incentive for for companies to, or, or people to really invest in innovation. So we, we're we very big on patent rights.
0: And uh, being forced to share those patents or stealing, how how are you coping with that? Um,
1: you know, we, we have less of direct stealing of the IP. And remember, a patent, essentially, the bargain is, I'm going to tell you exactly how this invention works and I want the right to use it. Or, or license it to someone, obviously. So, so it, it, it is in and of itself a roadmap for how do you use the technology. That's the bargain that the patent holder makes. Our problem has come is that people don't want to pay for it. And so we, we occasionally have um, disputes with, with companies, and sometimes governments get involved on one side or the other to try to resolve that. But, um, you know, I think, I think the benefit of, of patent-strong IP rights worldwide I mean it's just companies like ours wouldn't exist you wouldn't you, you essentially wouldn't have the cellular ecosystem if people couldn't rely on monetizing those inventions through the patent system
0: finally five uh, g are we uh, going to be in the front uh, in the middle in the back which leads to an even broader question is the u s as innovative and creative today as it was in the past
1: uh well, I think certainly we are. I, think, I, I, I wouldn't bet against the United States in terms of, of, of innovation. Of course, it's maybe self-serving to say that.
0: Steve, thank you very much. It's uh, inspiring to talk with somebody with a company that uh, continues to innovate and uh, tries not to, uh, and successfully tries not to get uh, tripped up either by events or by failing to foresee the future. Thank you. Thank you. And now, my reads for the week. Look up a piece by Dan Henninger at the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. The title is Joe Biden Isn't Going to Make It. It's about Joe Biden and his fading candidacy, which is sinking even without the Ukrainian albatross. He isn't the same Joe Biden as he was in 2012 when he bested in decisive fashion the vice presidential debate between him and the soon-to-be House Speaker Paul Ryan, Biden won it, even though Ryan had more facts at his fingertips. The other thing Henninger points out is Trump. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, he is a fighter. And the Democrats going after him incessantly for two and a half years has put Trump in fighting trim better than any of the Democrats who are facing him today. You put any of those Democrats against him in a debate and Trump is going to beat them badly. Another one to look out for is called the case for free trade. The case for free trade is a unilateral one. It's by Donald Boudreaux, B-O-U-D-R-E-U-X. It's at aier.org. That stands for the American Institute for Economic Research. Boudreaux makes the case that the U.S. should be reducing trade barriers whether our trading partners reciprocate or not. History shows that when you open yourself up to the world, you prosper more than the rest of the world. That goes against what we're hearing today, but it's well worth reading. Now, another one. This one is gonna confuse you at the beginning, but I'll explain it. The title is, Mifsud's Cell Phones Mean Bar Investigation Heating Up. This fellow Mifsud is a mysterious Maltese professor, but he was at the heart of the Russian probe. Now, apparently the Attorney General now has two critical cell phones, which means information is gonna come the perpetrators of this scandal don't want him to hear. You can find it. It's by Roger Simon on pjmedia.com, pjmedia.com, Roger Simon, S-I-M-O-N, and he explains what all of this means. But Mifsud, it sounds mysterious, and it is. This is something you're going to want to read because it leads to Barr's investigations, which is going to overshadow the whole impeachment debate, when Barr releases his investigation reports in a few weeks. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.